It's Monday, August 22nd. Welcome to Mark Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Stock Advisor Canada, Taylor Muckerman, and from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser. Happy Monday, gents. Hey, what hey. What is up? The Olympics. That's what's They're up. Over. They are over. And we're gonna we're gonna dip into the full mailbag. Just a U.S. beatdown of the rest of the world. <laughs> uh, in some cases, yeah. I mean, if you're looking at overall medal count, yeah. yeah. Although I, there was there was some amazing track and field stuff. Absolutely. Just just the uh, Mo Farah, the runner from Great Britain. I mean, literally falling down mm-hmm. slash getting knocked over, ending up in last place, and then going on to win. Like that was amazing. Um, I saw some clip on Twitter of someone. What is it? The steeplechase. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh yeah. This I. It's the individual like had slipped and fell going into one of the hurdles. Yeah. Face planted and then, like, a hurdle. Face planted the hurdle. I just yeah. Wow. It didn't look like it was. Uh, didn't look good. You know, and and we'll get to the business aspect of the Summer Olympics in just a second. But I was talking with Bill Barker this morning, and one of the things that that he brought up was how. Essentially, the longer the race, if you're talking about running, the longer the race, the more strategy is involved. Whereas with, if it's just sprinting, it's just well, okay, who's the fastest person? Okay, they're just going to run full out, you know, until Us- they die. Yeah, Usain Bolt, great. <laughs> Whereas you know, in the mile run, the guy, the guy uh, from the U.S. whose name escapes me, who won the uh, the 1500 meter, mm-hmm. you know, there was a great deal of strategy that goes into that, and and the analysis before the race is much more about like. Well, it depends on what happens. You know, unlike a sprint where you go, well, this person could set a world record, but I'm pretty sure the final time is going to be within like one or two seconds of this time. Whereas with the 1500 meters, it's like, well, this could be a world record, but depending on how the strategy goes, maybe they finish 10 seconds late. Yeah. Um, I just like how on Twitter, after the 1500 meters, this is the first American to win this race since 1908. And people started tweeting about like what was going on in 19. It's like 1908. Teddy Roosevelt was president. (laughs) The toaster had not yet been invented. The traffic light had not been invented. Context is everything. I mean, every was was it yesterday? I think yesterday marks the next year we will see. I think was it the full a full solar eclipse? Mm -hmm. It's like a year from now, but people are already talking about like one year and counting. Yeah, and I just hey, that's great. Let's just someone please remind me because I can't set a clock. It's going to be like yeah, I'm sure we'll talk about it more as it gets closer. All right, let's get to the business aspect of the Olympics because uh, NBC, uh, a subsidiary of Comcast, is now in the position where it is offering make goods to advertisers. And for those unfamiliar, uh, anytime you're looking at, well, it, it, generally it's it's any type of programming, but in particular when you were talking about live sports programming, we see this every year with the Super Bowl. Uh, whatever the network is, is guaranteeing a certain amount of audience to advertisers. That's why, in the case of the Super Bowl, they're really hoping it's a close game going into halftime because if it's a blowout, <laughs> they know someone in the back of you know in the back office somewhere is already calculating. How ratings are going to plummet in the second half, and here's how much we're going to have to, you know, pay back in make goods. Um, ratings were down for this one, and maybe we shouldn't be surprised by this. But uh, Jason, I'll just start with you. They guaranteed ratings and fell two full ratings points short. That is that is not close. So nope. you know, it's still to be determined how much money NBC is going to have to shell out. But I'm pretty sure it's going to have a lot of zeros attached to it. <laughs> uh, likely, yeah. I mean, I think. Um... Before the Olympics started, I tweeted out that I had a hard time believing that I was going to consume 
any Olympics beyond my phone. And and that was in no way meant to berate the Olympics or NBC or anything like that. It was more a testament really to the shift in the space and what I've seen in a very short amount of time in the way not just not just the way that I personally consume content, but I mean I think it, it's blatantly obvious everywhere you go the way people are consuming content now. Um, it's much more mobile oriented, and I think that's the reason why we're seeing uh, more and more deals. I think we saw it sort of with the Olympics here, and in Twitter and Snapchat and Facebook all kind of getting a little bit, uh, you know, of, of their of the, of the content for the games and being able to sort of distribute it. However, um, but I think even more so, I think I think if we look to something like the NFL's recent deal here with Thursday Night Football, I think that's going to be a bit of a better proxy as to maybe how in the future. Uh, whether it's NBC or CBS or ABC or whoever, I think that's going to need to be sort of the proxy, the way that they look at this, because it's no longer just about broadcast television. I mean, when we were growing up, it was pretty simple. I mean, you had probably three channels in your house. It was ABC, CBS, and NBC, and you would watch it on one of those three channels. Public television. Don't Public forget television. Don't forget Sesame okay, Street. Yes, I don't don't mean to, to, <laughs> to exclude that, but but it was a very simple time. Your choices were very limited. Um, and you really weren't paying anything to watch it, but you just got what it was when it was on, and, and we we were happy to get what we got. Today, obviously, it's a much different space, um, and, and I think the NFL deal that they cut for the Thursday night football thing was a a good sort of indicator in the way things are going because they it wasn't just about saying okay, Twitter's going to get Thursday night football because it's not just Twitter. I mean, it's going to be a three pronged approach that they're taking in getting the broadcast segment, the cable segment, and the social sort of digital segment, and and that is covered by the the deal with CBS and NBC to, to get the, to air those games, and then the NFL Network will air the games, and then also Twitter will air the games, and so they're maximizing their audience, I think, by doing that, which makes a lot of sense. And if you're going to be guaranteeing that kind of money to advertisers the way NBC did. I would think you'd want to guarantee that money in making sure that you have your biggest audience possible, and, and I think that that's going to be the surefire way to do it. So, Taylor, do you think that? I mean, right now the story is, and I think probably rightly so, um, about this ratings guarantee that they fell short on. Um, so it, it seems like part of Comcast's challenge, uh, because they've got the rights to the Olympics, NBC is going to be broadcasting Winter and Summer Olympics. Through the year 2032, <laughs> and so it seems like at least part of the challenge that they're going to be dealing with is how do they slice up this pie in terms of the guarantees they make? Because they, you know, and I don't, I don't blame NBC for sort of defending their numbers, um, but they're going, you know, they're going out and saying, look, yes, this was was what we saw in terms of television ratings, and this in terms of primetime ratings, this was down. But in terms of what we served up on mobile, in terms of what we so you know, served up on NBCSports.com, a lot of ads being served up there mm-hmm. as well. Here's what our overall audience is, and I, I get that they're pushing that, but I, I don't know that advertisers are buying that right away. Probably not, and I think it's just the mindset of traditional advertising has taken place on television. And so, when you think about the Olympics, that's how everyone's watched it up until probably this year, for the most part, um, on television on one channel or with a family of channels. Um, and you had this Olympics with a lot of doubts leading up to it, so maybe it was a, a situation where it was harder to predict ratings. Uh, you, you, a lot of issues were on the table for what could have happened at this Olympics in terms of crime, Zika, um, health issues with athletes. So, 
maybe it was just some some funky math that they were working with this year, but you look at where the Olympics are coming up in the next couple uh, of years, and there could be some problems there too. So broadening your audience, like like Jason was talking about, the NFL doing, I, I can't see any fault in that. Um, and you just have totally different audiences. I feel like the younger generation would definitely hop on the social media bandwagon a lot more than trying to go watch it at a set schedule on their TV. They can carry it in their pocket. You get Wi-Fi. Cities are now building out Wi-Fi for free, so you can watch it outside if you want to. Um, and I think that that's going to be a necessity, especially if you're talking about the next 16 years. That's a hard. To, that's a hard thing to predict. Well, and you, you know, I've seen this story a couple of times where it's, you know, well, millennials get the blame for the low ratings, and it's like, well, <laughs> you know what? Um, that's. Um, I'm not buying that. Well, that's I mean, also a big age range. Well, it's, it's a not big just age like range. Five and, years worth of people, right? And it's also it also ignores the fact that NBC didn't really help themselves by putting a lot of stuff on tape delay. If you're if you're on yeah. Twitter or Facebook or where like just going online, just looking at the news, a lot of these really exciting events um, were broadcast hours after they actually took place. And I mean, you mentioned the next couple of Olympics. You got the Winter Olympics in 2018 in Pyeongchang, South Korea, and then the 2020 Summer Games in Tokyo. The tape delay issue, yeah, <laughs> that's not going away, Jason. Yeah, they, I mean, like, they, that's to me, that's an even bigger thing they need to figure out. Twitter told me Usain Bolt won the 100 meter sure. final and 200 meter final before I even saw it on TV. Sure, I mean, I think I think that's that's obviously one of the biggest strengths of Twitter's platform is that it is very instantaneous, and I think that you're seeing. Um, that you're seeing the benefits of all of these big networks, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, or or Twitter. I mean, these are all very big networks where a lot of people participate, and they're feeding a lot of information into those platforms in real time, which which makes them very beneficial. And and if you're an advertiser, you want to go where the most eyeballs are. And so I don't know many people that are waking up in the morning and just clicking on NBC's app to just kind of wake up and say, "Hey, I wonder what's going on in NBC's world today." It's just not how, nope. not how it works, right? So I mean, we know that people are waking up and they're clicking on Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and Instagram, and that's where they're going. And so again, we've talked about sort of this. I think you have sort of the, the one, perhaps dynamic out there that sees these properties as just social media properties. I mean, when I look at them, I think when a lot of investors look at them, we look at these as the the media companies of the 21st century. And I think that um, I think that your NBCs and CBSs of the world would be very wise to go ahead and try to saddle up with them in any capacity they can, because again, these are where everybody is going. And I was thinking about this today. I went this morning to go get my car inspected at the Ford place. And I'm sitting in there um, watching the the news they have on TV, just the local Fox DC news, and it was very interesting to see how it's the first day of school I think here in DC for a lot of folks, and they're they're showing all of these pictures that people are tweeting in and Instagramming in of their first day of school, and it started I started thinking about this whether it's it's our podcast or whether it's the news, they're becoming more and more dependent on content that's coming in from those channels. We didn't see that 20 years ago because these channels didn't exist. But now, all of a sudden, you're seeing where these news organizations, these shows, are being informed by those very platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and whatnot. So, we're seeing, I think, a very, very monumental shift here, a very plainly obvious shift, and you're either going to get on board and figure out alliances with these with these platforms, or I think you're going to be left in the dust. Last question on Comcast, and we'll move on to the mailbag. Starting with the Winter Games in 2018, going through 
2032, wherever those Olympics will be held, <laughs> Comcast has has paid up more than ten billion dollars for the rights to the upcoming Olympics and to games. pay their advertisers back. Right, <laughs> sure. Um, and I think that was just the U.S. rights, isn't it? I mean, it's just the the rights to show that content here in the yeah. U.S. I believe. So, if you're a Comcast shareholder, how are you feeling about that? I mean, that ten billion dollars that's already been committed. Well, I mean, I, I I look at it as opportunity. I mean, I I would not look at this as just sort of the the harbinger of things to come. I think that you have to say, all right, they've got it. Now let's see if they have leadership that is is trying to see around every corner. Because I fully expect that they'll be figuring out new ways and new places to get this content out there. If they don't, then I would be far more concerned here over the over the coming. Well, we have Winter Olympics in two years, and then another summer two years later. So, if we don't see these next two installments um, where their behavior is change, changing drastically, then uh, then I'd be, yeah, I'd, I'd be concerned. Marketfoolorgetfool.com is our email address from Brian Diedrich in Washington, D.C. Why do the markets seem to turn downward on any news that the Fed is raising interest rates in the near future? I understand that low rates are beneficial to businesses and consumers alike by allowing for greater cash flow, and any increase to interest rates diminishes that effect. However, the Fed has stated that it will only raise rates if it believes the economy is strong and has a positive outlook. If the Fed's decision to raise rates affirms a positive outlook for both the U.S. and global economies, shouldn't this rosy perspective offset any fear investors have for businesses over the short term? It's a great question. I, I, it's a loaded question. It's a loaded question. <laughs> it, it also seems like uh, Brian may uh, have a more optimistic view of how people react in the short term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you look at it, it's been a narrative for so long that these interest rates are going to remain low. And yeah, you would imagine that if the only impetus for raising them is a solid footing for the U.S. economy and potentially the global economy, that should be a good thing for stocks. But you've got these people that have been using this low interest rate, these low interest rate funds to then invest in the market because um, you're kind of being forced out of savings accounts uh, and. You're not making your one, two, even three percent anymore. So, um, in a bank account, you're forced into the markets, and that's basically what I've been seeing personally. My thought is that when you pull that free money back, people are losing those millions and billions of dollars that they've been able to borrow basically for free to then invest in riskier assets like the stock market. So, personally, I don't get it because yes, the economy is doing better, the stock market should do better, but it's just the the bulk of the money the people that are using it are getting it for free right now and when you take that that's that spoon away then uh, what how where else is the the volume going to come from well and uh, Jason we've talked about this before never underestimate the number of people on Wall Street who have a really short timeline yeah and I think you hit the nail on the head right there and I mean I think Taylor's point is is very well taken as well I mean if you don't have if there's nowhere else to get the return then you're going to go where that return is and and, and uh, Wall Street certainly is not known for its uh, its long long investing timeline. So, number one, you have a very very overwhelming majority of the dollars that are that are transacting on Wall Street on a, on a daily basis, very short term focus. Um, and then it's just the way information travels today. You, you have to argue that it probably makes the market more efficient than it ever has been before. I mean, I think it was a lot easier to invest. Back in Buffett's day, because if you just were willing to do the work and had a place where you could get the information, 
it's probably a lot easier to find mispricings than you're gonna you're gonna find today because information travels so quickly. And so I think we see that that free flow of information really uh, moves things very quickly. But again, I mean, I think as long as interest rates are low, sure that helps on the company side. But from the investor's perspective, there is nowhere else to find that return. Um, so any any hint of rates going up, and we have to assume that over the long haul here, they can really go nowhere but up. You're going to see that money kind of slowly but surely come out and start looking for other options other than the stock market because there is a risk affiliated with investing in the stock market versus something like bonds or savings accounts or CDs or what have you. Before we get to our next question, I want to say thanks to Simon Kine, who is the VP of Marketing at Milton's Craft Bakers, and he sent a note last week. Uh, and I won't read the whole, a very nice lengthy note, but uh, he wrote, I listened with interest uh, to your episode on August 16th, which covered the day's stock market highlights and the discussion of the natural organic foods industry. In that discussion with your teammates, you posed the question of what to recommend as a healthy snack. Um, And by the way, I mean... (laughs) Aaron Bush. <laughs> I love talking to Aaron Bush, but I mean, sure, I don't know if you heard uh, that, where he was just like, oh, yeah, I'm more of a carnivore, so just, <laughs> yeah. uh, just whatever meat you're having, just wrap it in lettuce. I was like, really? That's, <laughs> that's the move? Uh, so, fortunately, Simon goes on to write, I'm sending the enclosed assortment of Milton's gluten-free and non-GMO snacks for you and your team to enjoy. Um, this is a, uh, a small company in California. I had never heard of Milton's before. Uh, Simon sent four boxes of, of different snacks that they have different crackers and they I put them out for uh, the investing team and just is sort of up in our cafe and they were gone yep in no time people so thank you the salsa flavor so, was extra delicious uh, salsa yeah, flavor gluten free crackers I tried the tortilla chips and was very impressed yeah. I mean this is coming from the perspective of someone who's trying to add more gluten to his diet yeah I mean I'm like you know <laughs> well, we talked about this before I mean a lot of times it, it, uh, I mean a lot of times, stuff that's gluten-free it tastes a little bit like cardboard, and this was this was a wonderful surprise. This was delicious stuff, and this is again Milton's Craft Bakers. You, you can find their stuff in Giant, Harris Teeter, Wegmans, Fresh Market. They're in a lot of places. So. Yeah, that was a super super nice thing. Thanks, yes. Simon. We we all really enjoyed those. Uh, question from Scott Crawford, who writes: Today is my birthday. Happy birthday, Happy Scott. birthday. Happy birthday. Uh, a long-term buy-and-hold stock or two to consider would be a great present. Hey, now. Now, Scott did not include his age, so and and so we're going to have to we're going to have to guess a little bit at what Scott's time horizon is, but let's let's at least assume that if he's listening to our show, he's got he's thinking decades out. He's saying, you know, long-term buy-and-hold. So, um Let's go with uh, one or two stocks he can add to his watch list. Just something sure. to consider, mm-hmm. Jason. Sure. What do you uh, got? So I, I took this a couple of different ways. I got two ideas for you. All right. And uh, one is a little bit lower on the risk ladder. One's a little bit higher up on the risk ladder. But uh, we'll start with the lower risk ladder first. Here, lower risk investment. I think Markel Insurance. It's one we talk a lot about here um, at the Fool. Ticker is MKL. Generally speaking, I think that the majority of insurance companies really aren't all that attractive. I think from the consumer's perspective, most people think the deck is stacked against them. They're just trying to figure out a way to not pay you. And I think in most cases, it's probably right. Um, and it's essentially just a necessity. You're forced to have it in some capacity. The interesting thing about Marikel is what they do, how they insure. They're insuring these sort of specialty policies that 
other people won't cover. Think about jet boats and like rodeos. Seriously, I mean, those are the types of things that Mark Ellis is underwriting. Um, and so, in that they've been able to do this for so long and, and really so successfully, every year they just get better and better at it, which really just grows their competitive advantage more and more as time goes on. They just have a very good knack for specialty insurance. And so, they've done a really good job with it through the years. Stockholders continue to win. And I think that uh, yeah, this is a business with a management team that certainly thinks very uh, long out as well, very Buffett-like. We love them. We met them and, and interviewed uh, with them and everything. And uh, recently moved to a co-CEO structure with uh, the former chief investment officer, now co-CEO Tom Gaynor and Richard Witt. Between the two of them, they have almost thirty years uh, combined at the company. And and again, I think they will uh, continue to be there for for a while to come. So good long term thinkers. One where I think you could kind of buy it, set it, and forget it. Sells at about one and a half times book value today. Not not a terribly uh, uh, unattractive valuation. The other one on the higher end of the risk scale is Ellie May. Ticker is E L L I. I've talked a lot about Ellie May here as well. I think, but the risk in the near term could perhaps be seen on the valuation side. But I think they they've always looked fairly pricey because. Of their competitive position in their industry, it's mortgage software, and so no matter whether you're a big lender with a bank or a little boutique lender running your own shop, you're running across their product in some capacity, or you're using it in some capacity, and uh, they cover they cover the the mortgage lending process from soup to nuts, and and you know for me just huge barriers to entry on the regulation side alone, like they ever since the financial crisis really built this network out that that meets all all of those regulatory. Uh, concerns and and that again, as time goes on, they just get a a bigger and bigger competitive position, grow their network out, exercise a little pricing power. So, yeah, perhaps a little risk in the valuation side today, but again, I think it's one you could hold on to comfortably, knowing that they have a pretty good future ahead of them. And I will add that we own both of these holdings in million dollar portfolio, and I personally also own both of these companies in my own portfolio. So take that for what it's worth. Specialty insurance and mortgage software. Boy, Jason Moser <laughs> is bringing the sexy <laughs> today. Sexy side of stocks. <laughs> All right, Taylor. I'm gonna follow that up with two stocks as well. Um, wow, Scott's having a great birthday. One. I don't know what Scott's <laughs> family and friends got him, but yeah, hopefully we get him some long term financial <laughs> prosperity yeah. here. Um, the first one, uh, don't want to leave you with just a top five market cap company, and that's Amazon. So I'll give you a, a small cap in a little bit too. But that's probably the company I believe in the most. Um, and so that's where I'm going to say is uh, probably a top stock for the long term for me personally. I do own it just like Jason owns his too. And then Shopify, maybe a company that comes up using Amazon as, as a growth engine. It's an e commerce platform, founder led, um, tremendous growth. Over the last couple of years, uh, IPO'd um, just in the early part of 2015, and uh, it's growing revenue by 90% quarter over year over year on a quarterly basis. Over 300,000 customers, mainly dealing with small to medium-sized businesses, um, but uh, it's probably my favorite company right now personally. What's the tinker on Shopify? It's a SHOP, nice. uh, and it's also traded in Canada under SH on the TSX. All right, happy birthday, Scott. Jason Moser, Taylor Muckerman, thanks for being here, guys. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow.